Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, 
BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everybody. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 14, Princes, Princesses, Kings, and Queens. Last episode, I discussed what it meant to be king of the Persian Empire during the Taspid period of the early kings, and a few episodes ago now, we covered the final years and death of Cyrus the Great. So now it is time to discuss Cyrus's children, the second generation of the Persian royal family. The family of Cyrus the Great is never laid out explicitly in our sources, like this is Cyrus, his wife, the names of their kids, and their dog. Instead, the family tree is pieced together from various stories and references, mostly from Herodotus, but also from a couple of Persian inscriptions and Theseus. So let's lay out the names. Obviously, we're already familiar with Cyrus at this point. We've named two of his wives as well, though doubtless he had more. Amatus of Media the daughter of Astyages, and Cassandine, a Persian noblewoman. We can probably ignore Amatus today, as none of our sources name her explicitly as the mother of any of the princes or princesses. Cyrus had at least three children by Cassandine, who would have been the primary queen, i.e. the Persian mother of the crown prince. Both of his sons, Cambyses, called Cambogia in Persian, and Bardia were her children. At least one of his daughters is also said to have been with Cassandine. That would be Atosa, called Utalthwa by her Persian friends, who is probably one of the most significant members of this generation. That leaves just two more daughters, two more Dishkish, as women in the royal house were called in Elamite documents. At least two whose names have come down to us over the millennia. Neither is associated with a specific mother, leaving it possible that they were either Cassandine's or Amatus's children, or from other wives entirely. Of the whole family, these two are probably the most minor figures for now. Herodotus tells us about Artistine, or Artistuna in Persian, who is an extremely minor figure during the reigns of her father and brothers, but rose to much more prominence as a favorite wife of Darius. The final and most obscure daughter is Roxane, who is mentioned by Theseus only in the context of being both Cyrus's daughter and Cambyses' wife. We can probably say that her name was Raukshna in Old Persian, but only because she shared it with the much more famous wife of Alexander 150 years later in our narrative. Of all of Cambyses' wives, she's the only one we ever hear about getting pregnant, and it's in the context of her own death during a miscarriage while traveling with Cambyses in Nubia. Nothing else is known about her. And yeah, I just said that she was her half-brother's wife. So let's get into the specific stories of Cyrus's kids and figure out what the hell is going on with that. Now that we've covered the old king's family, let's cover the same deal for the new king. There's a lot more overlap than you might expect, especially if you're unfamiliar with marriage practices of ancient Near Eastern kings. 
As far as we know, Cambyses, king of kings, king of Persia, king of Babylon, etc., etc., never had any children, so we only have to address his wives here. And you've already met two of them, Atosa and Roxane. Yep, this guy married his sisters. Gross? Maybe not if you're an ancient king, or even a medieval European one. There's a long-running joke that royals are inbred, and there's a lot of truth to that. The royal dating pool of most civilizations is pretty small, generally limited to foreign royalty and the upper nobility. Often that led to a lot of marriages with close cousins, aunts, uncles, and even the occasional step-parent. However, it still feels like there's a bit of a leap from cousins to immediate siblings. Roxane, we can at least say, was a half-sister. But Cambyses and Atosa? 100% full siblings through Cyrus and Cassandine. What exactly does that say about Cambyses, or maybe even Cyrus if he's the one who directed these marriages? Well, probably a lot less about weird incest than you might be thinking. Remember, last week I said that they had a very loose grasp of genetics? So the negative effects of inbreeding might not have been as well understood as they are now. But today they're usually exaggerated for humor and taboo's sake. One generation of inbreeding isn't all that likely to result in deformities or major health problems. Habitual incest over multiple generations? That's a different issue. That said, those health risks never really came into play with the sister wives of Cambyses, because there were no children. One explanation for this arrangement, and later a Cayman incest, is that the king, Cambyses here, was taking his sisters out of the marriage market, just limiting the number of possible claimants to the throne and or Cyrus's inheritance. That ties in with the idea that legitimacy and kingly traits ran in bloodlines that I mentioned last time too, and would have ensured that any children between a prince and a princess had royal blood on both sides. Personally, I think this is the more plausible explanation. It is certainly the origin of many other incest-prone dynasties like the Egyptian pharaohs, Hellenistic Greek kingdoms, or the later and infamous Habsburg dynasties of early modern Spain and Austria. That said, there is another often talked about idea when it comes to ancient Persian kings marrying their close relatives. That is the Zoroastrian religious and philosophical concept of Kavaitu Uadatha, an Avestan word that means next of kin marriage. You might also hear it called Kewadoda, which is the Middle Persian version of the same word. It's used in a lot of Sasanid texts that explain the concept. It's just one word, but there's a lot of interesting history packed around it. On the modern end of things, Zoroastrians since the arrival of Islam in Iran have upheld the idea that it refers to marriage between first cousins. On the very ancient end of things, Kivaitu Uadatha in the Avesta is used to describe Ahura Mazda and Amaiti Spenta, one of the Amesha Spentas, creating a being called Geomart who was the father of the human race, in some stories. What exactly that meant in early Zoroastrianism is basically unknowable. The Amesha Spenta are those strange and abstract spirits that are simultaneously the building blocks of creation, part of Ahura Mazda, and at times their own independent beings. Some traditions had Armaiti Spenta as Ahura Mazda's daughter, and thus the story was used to codify the idea of creating a new being between father and daughter, which in practice for humans meant incest. But the original sense of Armaiti as a daughter was probably that she was a creation of Ahura Mazda, and the original sense of Kavaitu Uadatha was probably the idea of two parts of a whole creating something together. 
the whole issue of the word as it appears in the Avesta is just very unclear. More clear is what it came to mean by Sassanid times in late antiquity, when Old Persian had developed into Middle Persian and the word had become Kewadoda. Kewadoda pretty clearly referred to the custom of royalty and maybe nobles marrying within their immediate family, and was actually considered an incredibly righteous act. How it got to that point is unclear. The probable explanation is that more ancient kings, probably from the more recent Parthian or Sassanid dynasties, but also possibly the Achaemenids, already practiced this kind of close kin marriage, and then found pre-existing religious concepts to justify it. Certainly that has happened all through history with different concepts in different religions, and the explanation fits very nicely in this case. So perhaps, even if Cambyses' marriage to his sisters was not an example of him practicing Kevaitu Uadatha, then it was planting the seeds for the concept to develop in Persian and Zoroastrian culture. While it did limit the number of claims to the throne, these marriages may not have been intended to produce heirs for the empire, though Roxane's pregnancy does seem to contradict that idea. Cambyses had another, possibly two, Persian wives from outside the royal family. His first wife, according to Herodotus, was a noble woman named Phidamia. As she was his first wife and a Persian, it may be that she was supposed to be the primary queen. But before you start thinking that this union wasn't incestuous, you should probably know that Phidamia might have been a first cousin to her new husband. Her father, Otanes, was the son of a man named Pharnaspes, as was Ksandine. It's possible that there were two high-ranking nobles named Pharnaspes, and equally possible that it's the same man, in which case Phidemia and Cambyses were maternal cousins. A single fragment from Persepolis mentions the Shura of Cambyses and the Lady Upandash. We have no other record of this name, and no real idea what Shura means. It could be a shared tomb, a monument, a house, something else entirely, really no idea. It's also possible that Upandash was not married to the king, or that her name is just the Persian iteration of a name that we've been more familiar with in Greek. Despite living through the latter years of his father's conquests and the first years of the Persian Empire, we know even less about Cambyses than we do about Cyrus. We know that he was named King of Babylon as an honorary position, or possibly to serve as its governor, in 539 BCE, and according to the Babylonian Chronicle, he lost his mother the following year. We don't even know how old he was, but we can sort of take a guess at it. We know that he was not the youngest child of Cyrus and Cassandine, and that his sister Atossa was born around 550 BCE based on her age when she died. If we assume Atossa was the youngest, though she probably wasn't, and was born at the very end of her mother's ability to carry a pregnancy, even though she probably wasn't that either, we can guess that Cambyses was at his most in his mid-40s when he came to the throne. But that's an extreme, and unlikely. More plausibly, he was in his 30s, and thus in his 20s when he was named King of Babylon for the first time. Meanwhile, we know slightly more about his younger brother after Cyrus's death, if only because we can assume that Bardia was doing the same things before and after Cambyses invaded Egypt. Unlike his brother, we know that he had one daughter, Parmis or Parmida, who I'll talk about a little bit more when we get to, you guessed it, Darius. But before I get to that, I want to talk about this guy's names, because he has a ton of them. I've been calling Cyrus's younger son, Bardia, 
because that's the name used in both recent scholarship and the old Persian language of the Behistun inscription. However, if you start delving into the ancient Greek sources and early modern scholarship, then you get a lot of variety. The most common variation other than Bardia is Smerdis, which is what Herodotus called him and what English writers did before Bardia started gaining popularity as a more accurate name in the 70s and 80s. However, that just scratches the surface. The Greek poet Ananaron called him Smerdies, not too different, especially if you've only heard the word spoken. Tisius, however, calls him Tanuarches, and Xenophon called him Tanukares. The playwright Aeschylus called him Mardos, and the Roman Justin called him Mergis. Modern historian A.T. Olmsted also lists Marufius and Merphis, but I couldn't track down the ancient sources used to get those two. So what gives? How can one guy have nine different names? The honest answer is we really don't know. Since it's the name used in the Persian source, we can probably guess that Bardia was his actual name. Tenu Oxerkes and Tenoxeres were probably used by Ctesias and Xenophon around the same time, both of whom traveled through Persia, and it might mean something like large-bodied in Old Persian. So that might be a nickname or an epithet associated with Bardia in Persia at some point. All those names starting with M probably derive from his story intersecting with the Median priests called M I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Agi, which I'll cover in a different episode. The jury's still out on where Herodotus got the name Smerdis from. It's vaguely Iranian, but that's just about all I've got. So now that we're all on the same page with just how little we know about the two sons of Cyrus the Great, back to where I ended last episode. For those that need a refresher, I left off talking about how the empire of Cyrus the Great was divided between Cambyses and Bardia after his death. As I said then, Cambyses was made the new king of kings, ruling over all of his father's domains, 
and Bardia was given control of Bactria, Sogdia, and other regions of eastern Iran and Central Asia ruled by the Persians. While that doesn't sound like much because it was less wealthy and not as frequently discussed in our sources, Bardia's domain accounted for between a third and half the total landmass of the empire at this time. Pierre Briant describes this as a consolation prize intended to keep Bardia from becoming too jealous of his brother's newfound ultimate power. The traditional view of things is that Bardia was a sort of super satrap over this area, still technically subservient to his brother, and assumably ruling over his own subordinates. But Theseus describes Bardia's territory as exempt from tax and tribute, and in an empire where the guy you send tribute to was one of the only unifying traits, this starts to sound a whole lot like an independent kingdom ruled by Bardia. Bardia was supposed to provide military aid to Cambyses, but that still can sound more like an alliance between the two brothers dictated by their father than an actual master-servant relationship, especially if Cambyses isn't receiving any kind of tribute. This whole situation reminds me of two other historical examples from much later in history. The first and more recent is the succession plans of Genghis Khan during the 13th century. When Genghis died, control over most of his territory passed to one of his sons, Ogadai, but the steppe land was divided between all of his sons. The land that they viewed as their heritage was shared, but unrelated conquered peoples passed to the new great Khan and him alone. There are certainly echoes of this in Cyrus's heirs. Cambyses got all of those westward conquests in Mesopotamia and Anatolia, as well as control of Persia, Media, and maybe Parthia. And Bardia got all of the territory inhabited mostly by eastern Iranian peoples, who the Persians shared some cultural heritage with. The second example takes us a little further back to the death of Louis the Pious, son of Charlemagne in 843 CE. Now, there are some civil wars and sibling rivalries behind all of this, but we don't need to get into that. Following Louis's death, his kingdom was divided between his surviving sons, with each receiving about a third of the empire. After a bit of a civil war, the division was settled in a treaty and the kingdoms were nominally allied, but in reality rivaled one another for years to come. Once again, I think there's a similar situation to Cyrus's sons here. Cyrus clearly left part of his empire in Bardia's hands and frankly, left Cambyses with very little jurisdiction there. When we talk about Persian provinces going into rebellion on this show, it will almost always involve the satrap refusing to pay his tribute or taxes, which amounted to a declaration of independence. So what do we make of Bardia's situation? If you can't tell, I'm really feeling the rhetorical questions today. Just so we're all on the same page, the system of the oldest son inheriting everything or the primary pieces of his father's estate, is called primogeniture. In such a system, where there is no son, the inheritance usually passes to the eldest male relative. That is not what was practiced in ancient Persia, even if it might look that way at a glance. Though many later kings attempted to pass the throne to their eldest, we have a few examples of other sons taking or making a claim for the throne with significant support. So if it's not that, then what? The best place to look for information may be the cultures around Persia again. So what do the Assyrians and Elamites, our usual suspects, have to say about it? We can pretty much rule out Elamite influence here, because they seem to have followed primogeniture whenever it was an option. In Assyria, though, their kings, or rather their crown princes, 
were usually the eldest son, but almost as often could be passed over in favor of the sitting king's favorite son, who he thought was best equipped to rule. But we see none of this divide the empire with special privileges stuff that we see with Cambyses and Bardia. The brothers of the Assyrian kings were made governors of important territories, but they were still generally playing by the same rules as all of the other governors. Both the Assyrian nobility and later Zoroastrian traditions dictated that the father's estate be split equally, or almost equally, among his sons. But this was never the case for royalty in either culture. Perhaps it was the case for the Tasted Princes, but it's very hard to say with any certainty. If you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen that I reached out to try and find some relevant sources for this, and mostly struck out. One suggestion that I did receive is that the Persians, like many other Eastern Iranian and Northern Steppe tribes, did not have any clear secession traditions beyond the right of the parents and then the king to choose his favorite son by his primary wife. Often that would be the eldest because he was the best trained, but that was never guaranteed, and there was always a chance for a younger son to legitimately be raised to power. Once again, that doesn't totally cover the current predicament, but it does give me an out. If, like the steppe nomads, the Persians had no guaranteed succession traditions, then Cyrus could, theoretically, choose to do whatever the heck he wanted, and if he wanted to somehow balance the power between his sons, this would have been the way to do it. Not a codified Frankish partition of their territory, but kind of impromptu and from the mind of the great king like the division of territory among the Mongols, who were of course part of that wider steppe culture even if they did live hundreds of years later. There's certainly a ring of plausibility there. A good piece of evidence would be if we had any precedence for something like this. We don't know much about Persian history before Cyrus the Great except for a few names, but those names do provide one interesting possibility. I brought this one up back during episode 5, King of Persia, when I talked about that royal title. According to inscriptions from Darius and Xerxes I, who were the first kings to use the Achaemenid family name, they were descended from a branch of the same family as Cyrus. They claimed that Taspes, the great-grandfather of Cyrus the Great, had two sons. One was Cyrus I, and we've been following his line through the series so far. The other was Ariaromnes. Even later Achaemenid inscriptions say that Ariaromnes was the king of Persia. That gave rise to a modern theory that Taspes divided his kingdom between Cyrus I and Ariaromnes, making Ariaromnes the ruler of Persia and Cyrus I the ruler of Anshan. This is largely refuted by more recent scholarship that tends to think that Persia and Anshan were alternate names for the same place under the Taspid kings, but that too has flaws. Why does Cyrus use both titles at different times in the Babylonian Chronicle? How do Assyrian records of Parsimash being a land in the southern Zagros rather than the Iranian plateau fit in with this? The simple answer is that we don't know how any of this works, and none of it rules out the possibility that Taspes gave Area Romney's territory in or near Persia like the later Cyrus did with Bardia in his eastern empire. Of course, all of that relies on accepting the idea that the Achaemenid family tree, as given by Darius, is correct. And I'm not sure I do, but I'll get to that when I get to Darius. So there's one last thing to decide before we understand where the sons of Cyrus the Great stood before Cambyses went off to Egypt. 
Was this a wholesale partition of the empire, creating two legally separate kingdoms for each son, or was it secundogeniture, where the younger son starts a cadet branch ruling his own territory, but technically subordinate to the elder brother? Perhaps that's what Cyrus meant for this to be, and Bardia's children would eventually return to paying tribute to Cambyses' children, but even if that were the case, royal cousins in the ancient world slaughtered each other over less. If Theseus has the right of it here, and Bardia didn't pay tribute or taxes to his brother, then I think there would have been a de facto partition of the empire. So with that settled, we can probably say that after their father died, the two princes, or maybe two kings, parted ways. Bardia went east to settle in at his new seat in Bactra and probably skirmished with the Saka raiders on his northern border for a couple of years. Meanwhile, Cambyses went west, maybe stopping in at Pasargadai to check in on construction there, and spend some time in his father's palace before heading to Ecbatana and Babylon for official coronation and time to review his father's plans for invading Egypt and edit them to his own liking. Presumably while he was in Ecbatana, Cambyses commissioned a palace estate in Iran called Matanan. We don't know very much about what the palace was for or who its intended occupants were when it was built. We know that a large number of Babylonian laborers and supervisors were brought in for the construction, suggesting that it might have been inspired by the new king's time in Mesopotamia. In all likelihood, Cambyses never spent any time there himself. As we will see, he spent most of his reign far from Persia, and after Cambyses' death and Darius's rise to power, the Persepolis fortification tablets tell us that Cambyses' sister, Artistone, and her son Arsimes were the primary owners of the palace and surrounding lands. That leaves the story of what Cyrus's daughters were doing aside from getting married to Cambyses. As I've said before, that's basically all we know about Roxane, so this is really about Artistone and Atosa. There's very little to say about either except that you should keep them in mind right now, because they'll both be very prominent later. The key feature of both is that they lived through their father's conquests and reign. Atosa was probably born sometime around the conquest of Media, Artistone's date of birth is harder to place, but probably around the same time. One possibility is that she was Cyrus's younger daughter. This is supported by the fact that we don't hear about her being married until she marries Darius, the fact that she is not among Cambyses' sister wives, but was also available to marry Darius, suggests that she may have remained signal until her brothers were dead. If Cambyses really was marrying his sisters just to keep them off the market and limit the number of possible claimants to the throne, then she may have been too young during Cambyses' life. However, Artistone is also a prominent matriarchal figure of the next generation of Persian royalty, a position which we wouldn't necessarily expect to see from the younger sister. But in the end, we know too little about either woman, and most of this is just speculation. The important detail is that both would have remembered and learned during their father's later conquests, and more importantly, the decade of court life and politics that followed. Under Cambyses and the brief reign of Bardia, both would have been prominent, probably playing leading rules in the court back in Persia, where they must have observed and taken part in all of the intrigue there. They grew their own influence and became some of the most powerful figures in their generation, if some of the more obscure ones. So with one eye on the more distant future of the Persian Empire, the next episode will start preparing us for Cambyses' invasion 
of the last significant power in the Near East with a discussion about the early Persian army, because I think the army that conquered the known world deserves some of its own dedicated discussion. Wait! Don't go just yet. I'm sure there are plenty of you that exit right about now and move on to some other activity instead of listening to the usual formulaic bit about coming to the website, etc, etc, etc. I'm going to do that, but I've got a couple of actual updates for you. First up, if you use Reddit or Discord, come to r slash history podcasts, that's plural, a forum dedicated to shows like this that is trying to give a place for both fans and creators of history podcasts to talk with each other about the shows they like and listen to. The subreddit has an associated Discord server that's a bit more active right now, and there's a link on the Reddit, and there will be a link to both in the episode description here. Second, some of you have probably already found this one because I mentioned it last time, but I now have an Instagram for the show too, where I post pictures from ancient Persian history, not all of which make it over to Twitter and Facebook. The name for that one is History of Persia Podcast, all is one word, no spaces, no caps or anything. Oh, and there's a new iteration of the Achaemenid family tree up to download on the website, this time carrying all the way through to the children of Darius because I needed to get all of that straight to help with this episode. Alright, carry on. If you want some more information, a selected bibliography, that family tree I just mentioned, check out the website. It's historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. In addition to Instagram and Reddit, you can find me on Facebook as the History of Persia Podcast and Twitter at History of Persia. Or you can just contact me through email, either on the contact page of the website or historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, are excited about what comes next, or just want to talk about Persia with your friends, please share the show. In real life, Facebook, as retweets, every option is a good option. If you can, I'd also love to see you review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to this. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the History of Persia. I'll see you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 